Hi, this is Mike Wheeler, co-host of Agility at Work, working together at least virtually with Kim Leary, co-host as well. Kim, uh, great to hear your voice. Always great to be with you, Mike. Now, at this point, uh, you're down east in Maine, as I understand. You and uh, Richard are still working, but at least have the refreshing experience of being in a new place. That's right. Uh, Every morning we get up, look out the window, look uh, across the water, and it's a really lovely way to start the day. Well, we've been oscillating between being in my hometown of Gloucester, Massachusetts, and now that we're inoculated, visiting visiting family in Vermont. We don't have the Atlantic Ocean, but we've got the Green Mountains, which I think would be a a draw here. I'm looking forward to uh, our guest today, Rob Wilkinson, who's from your school, the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and he shares with you an interest in and experience in adaptive leadership. Now, you've told me some of the things that you do in your teaching. I'm hoping that uh, we'll have a great discussion between the two of you about what you teach and how you teach it. Looking forward to welcoming Rob. But before I do that, Mike, I want to ask you about the Jazz of Negotiation, the new newsletter. Tell me about that. How's it going? Well, it uh, took a lot of work to get it launched. It's uh, on Substack. And people, if you allow me to (laughs) <laughs> to uh, plug it, it's uh, easily found on Substack. So it's uh, wheeler.substack, uh, wheeler.substack.com. And it gives people uh, free access to weekly articles I put up, short posts and so forth, and subscribers get additional content. It's fun reaching out to uh, a larger audience and having the opportunity of getting feedback from people. So Thank you for asking. But let's turn now, not to uh, jazz of negotiation, but uh, maybe to the jazz of leadership, if I may appropriate, uh, appropriate your course title. So let's invite Rob in. It's kind of an interesting story how I got into this because I came started from a very technical direction. I studied engineering undergrad and in grad school. And, uh, you know, kind of was good at math and fell into that path. But I ended up really feeling like what I was missing was the human element of, and, and, you know, dealing with the personal individual human aspect of the kind of challenges I was working on day to day. And I was more and more drawn to the aspect of getting things done in organizations that had to do with teams and group dynamics and dealing with really difficult interactions between people. And I thought, I wonder if there's a science about that stuff and not just the technical engineering and physics and chemistry that I was studying and working on. And little did I know that that was going to draw me into this many year quest to try and understand the science and research around human behavior and human interaction. So that's kind of how I got into it. Kim, you are not an engineer, but you're trained in clinical psychology and so forth. Now you're deeply steeped in agile leadership. How did that come about? So I was a clinical psychologist, trained as a clinical psychologist, working with people in sort of standard ways, counseling them, uh, working with individuals and families. But as I started to also work in public safety net hospitals and in leadership roles, uh, it became clear that just as Rob was mentioning, if you really wanted to get things done, you had to be able to work not only with people, but through people. And at the time, Massachusetts health reform was in full swing, and we were making the move in healthcare to team-based care. 
and also beginning to take up the social determinants of health, which involve not just the medical and healthcare dimensions of health, but how, where you live and what resources you have, all of that uh, contributes to uh, well-being or not. The kind of things we now think of as adaptive challenges or wicked problems. So that's uh-huh. how I got into leadership. Well, it's interesting that uh, I don't think of clinical psychology and engineering necessarily sitting on the same bench, but here you are uh, together p- pursuing this, really out of, I gather, recognition that uh, the human element is going to be important regardless of what the what the calling is. I, I think our listeners, Rob and Kim, would like to know what you teach when you teach adaptive leadership, and I'll chime in with questions and comments, but I'm looking forward to learning as as well. Uh, so if we can get a sense of how your courses are the same and different, uh, I'm all ears, as they say. Well, great. I mean, for me, I, um, I've been, now I currently teach leadership in the fall, and the, the model that I teach is something that Kim and I have both worked on an awful lot together recently. It's called the 4P model of leadership. It's a framework that looks at these four kind of big buckets of focus on leadership. Perception, which is how we multiply all of us look at the same thing and inevitably will extract wildly different perceptions about what's going on. And that's almost the first challenge for a leader. And then process, process management, working with groups and team dynamics, the human and emotional impact on people. So the human element that we were just talking about. And then finally, there's this idea of projection, not in the psychology projection of projecting onto other people you're thinking, but more the messages that we project as leaders all the time. And and more importantly, sometimes the informal and sort of uh, less obvious messages that we're sending out all the time. So in those four big buckets, uh, we and we recently just, we wrote a working paper working together on this, Kim and I, um, they turn out to be filled with lots of exciting and interesting research, I think, underneath all of them that lead to some really clear advice and tips and ideas on how you should think about managing your time and your energy as a leader. So that's been a lot of fun teaching that in the fall. And in the spring, I teach negotiation. And in my case, I've spent um, about 15 years living and working overseas on negotiation projects. So it's an international negotiation course that just has international cases and examples of issues around culture and um, working at a distance and that kind of stuff. So negotiation in the spring, leadership in the fall. And then I teach a lot of training courses for clients, different companies and government bodies and nonprofits, a lot of more short-term executive teaching as well related to all that sort of stuff. Well, I'm hoping we can get you back to talk about your negotiation teaching at the Kennedy School. You're also, I failed to introduce you as being on the faculty of the Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. I think the focus in this conversation, and we've got a lot of territory to cover, is on adaptive leadership. Now, Kim, we just heard Rob say, uh, describe this 4P model. Is your approach different in any respects, or are you absolutely on the same page in every uh, aspect? Well, Rob's model of the four Ps is a very elegant and accessible model that I think helps students and senior leaders to quickly have a chance to orient themselves around uh, some of the most important elements for leading change. When I teach, the courses I've taught most recently are team leadership, of of actually looking at how teams uh, work together or not in order to improve their performance towards goals. 
And I've tried to look at that in terms of public problem solving since the Kennedy School is about uh, public leadership and public problem solving. When I teach other kinds of leadership courses, Ronnie Heifetz and I have taught together and I've taught on my own on the topic of authority and authoritative voice in leadership. And there we're really looking at the way in which distinguishing leadership, mobilizing people on behalf of a collective challenge from management and from authority, which is being elected or selected for a role and then also having to then negotiate with others, both literally as well as in the spirit of negotiation about fulfilling their expectations or not in the course of holding that authority role. So what we found uh, at the Kennedy School, and I'd be interested in Rob's insights on this too, is that uh, our students often come with uh, a lot of baggage around authority. Many, many people have been mistreated in one way or another by authority structures, sometimes in very significant large-scale ways, like when a government leader betrays uh, his or her constituency, or in small but really important ways uh, by a boss or, or a mentor or even within one's family. And yet, if you're gonna get big things done in the world, you really do have to have teams and you have to have organizational processes and those do require the wise and judicious deployment of authority. We try to rehabilitate authority and to help our students to be able to nimbly move between uh, using authority when they have it in formal and informal variants and leadership, which anyone can practice regardless of whether or not they have a title. So Rob, if I heard Kim correctly, and she can jump in and uh, correct me if I didn't, many, maybe not all, but many of her students have had tough experiences with authority and uh, may cringe a little bit at that word that they have perhaps an idealistic view that everybody can uh, come together and easily reach consensus. First, do you, do you, you find your students have similar kinds of, of histories? And second, how do you introduce the idea of authority in a um, more collaborative way, if that's the right word? I absolutely have had the same experience uh, that Kim described. And uh, and I should add, by the way, I mean, I think Kim, I could, forgive me if I put words in your mouth, Kim, but I think she's very humbly uh, pointing, not mentioning that she's really an authority and an expert in all of those four Ps that I talked about, actually, and sees the, how they integrate um, beautifully, which is uh, rare. And it's really just so wonderful to keep listening and learning from her in that area. And as for the question of the students, you know, that experience that she describes about being betrayed by authority, however one views it, is pretty widespread. I mean, whether it's parents through to bosses, through to governments, um, people have had all of us experience with what it feels like to have to challenge authority. In fact, there's one of my colleagues who likes to say that every person when they were a child, at some point when you develop as a child and you form the ability to speak and you have an interaction with your guardian, whoever that is, at some point, you'll look them right in the eyes as a little kid, and you're going to say no. And however they respond that first time is your first experience of grappling with authority that you're challenging. That's sort of a template for how they think often about authority going forward. Now, I wouldn't want to say that there's always somehow this collaborative 
sort of uh, integrative approach to dealing with authority. I would say those of us who teach this stuff generally tend to look for ways where you can bring lots of groups of people together and integrate their opinions and try to find a solution that meets everybody's needs. At the same time, though, it is important to recognize that there are certain things like, for example, right now we're talking about uh, around the country right now, there's a major debate around policing and the Derek Chauvin trial, and it's raising a lot of questions about policing and what's the appropriate approach for uh, managing security while still respecting citizens of the society. And so it's not a straightforward collaborative approach always that's needed in the sense of, you know, directly challenging authority is sometimes appropriate. I think the bigger question is, are you making judgments that are strategic and intentional about how to go about that? And so maybe I'll just mention that one of the areas I worked in overseas internationally was in the area of human rights. I spent many years working on human rights issues with the United Nations uh, in peacekeeping missions. So it was about conflict resolution and human rights side by side and their intention, and that has to be navigated. So a lot of the students, I think, struggle with which way the pendulum should swing. Should it be more forcefully fighting against authority or collaborating with authority or some other combination of different approaches? And I think my goal is to get people to be uh, clear about the levers they want to pull for the outcomes they want to get, rather than defaulting into one approach versus the other. The other thing I would mention, and I again, Rob, just love to hear your thoughts about this too, is that you know, at the Kennedy School, our students um, are there as they are at the business school and many other places uh, with the expectation and the desire, and the ambition really to take on new roles for themselves and to lead. That's, a, that's often a reason why people come to the Kennedy School. So the other dimension of what you're talking about with authority is what happens when you are, you know, you get the, the job assignment uh, when someone elects you for the role or where you're appointed. And now you have to be the one who's mobilizing people within a system and people are looking at you to lead them, but they may also be looking at you just to keep the lights on and to make sure that the payroll is met. And how students who are uh, reluctant to take on authority, who have been betrayed by authority, navigate that, how they learn new skills so that they can not repeat the past, not repeat the challenges they've experienced, but find new ways of deploying their own authentic and authoritative voice. Kim, what do you mean by authentic? And uh, Rob, you can come in on this as well. I'm just curious about that word. Well, we are all exist in a social positioning. And there's some things that say the two of you as men in our society will be able to say in certain ways that as a woman, I might have to say in my own way, authentically in my own way, and to deploy my authority in a way that is commensurate with an awareness of the social world in which we operate, but also my own history and my own interest in getting a set of things done. So authentic is not something that's out there. I think authentic is something that we craft for ourselves. One thing that Kim said that I just wanted to sort of underline was the importance of recognizing that there's this idea of out there and students and all of us dealing with problems and issues to resolve that's out there. But a big part of what I think both Kim and I work on is turning the spotlight kind of back on yourself and thinking, well, what role do I play in this and what influence could I have? 
And when you start thinking about it that way, I think the definition of what a leader is starts to expand so that some people, I think, have an idea that leadership is the person at the top of the organogram or the person who controls the budget or who has to go out and publicly make the speech. And really, you can exert leadership as an activity at all levels. And that requires then someone to ask themselves, well, what influence can I have on this situation? Uh, however low on the sort of, you know, organogram or whatever it is that you happen to be, you're still able to exert leadership. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that people sometimes our students struggle with is it's easy to list off all the things that you can see happening around you that you're not happy with and you think should change. What's a lot harder is to ask honest questions about what role am I playing in that? Am I contributing to those things that I see that I don't like. Maybe I'm even by avoidance, even by consistently not speaking up or maybe by tacitly agreeing to things. Even when Kim was just making a great point about gender, for example, th thinking about when to step forward and when to step back and give space to others. Um, maybe the male perspective on this question has been sufficiently provided and we don't need more of that um, or other groups, you know, maybe. And that is from the inside, a, a, a level of self-reflection that I think is constantly necessary for any leader, whatever stage in their career to be going back to and revisiting again and again. One of the things I love, Rob, about the 4P framework is your phrase privileging with process. The way in which uh, at any point, you, as we make decisions about we'll do it this way and this will be step two and step three and the meeting will be at this time or that time, that we're making a set of decisions about who will be included and who sometimes unwittingly will be excluded. Uh, and the opportunity to recognize that every time you're acting, every time you're doing something on behalf of a problem with other people, you're you need to keep uh, you know, uh, an awareness of how you, your um, actions are affecting others because you're gonna have to course correct time and time again. And I think that's another message that comes through in the kind of teaching I think that we both do, that leadership is not one and done. Leadership is a process itself and it's something that involves continual iteration and constant learning and ongoing course corrections. Rob and Kim, as I listen to this, um, you know, not today, we're doing other things today, but soon you'll be back in a classroom. You'll be standing in front of your students. Uh, you will decide whom you will call on. You will grade papers. You'll grade final examinations. You'll do all of that. You're a per person of authority in that room. Now, that's true for all of us who teach, no matter what the subject is. But I wonder whether when you're teaching leadership generally, and maybe adaptive leadership in particular, whether that has a bearing, uh, consciously or otherwise, in terms of how you teach. Rob? I would absolutely say so. And the, it, I'd love to hear Kim's response uh, to this question as well, because for me, I feel like we almost have a double or two layer uh, aspect to teaching at the very same time. One is the kind of ideas and the content and the experiential learning we want to provide for the students. But the other thing is, as, as you're kind of implying there, Mike, when you're teaching, say, authentic leadership, for example, or adaptive leadership or any form of or even negotiation, 
people are watching you directly, how you engage with people, the choices you make, even in the breaks, before class, after class, they're really watching every move you make and noticing if there's something inconsistent with what you're doing from what you just spent you know, your class time teaching about. And we have a great friend and colleague across the hall who teaches statistics in the Kennedy School. And he was sort of teasing that he was joking, you guys should get paid more than me because I just teach stats. Nobody's watching like, how do I respond to a question or something? And it's consistent with, you know, with statistical probability. So I do think it very much affects our behavior and our thinking and even our pedagogy. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, you know I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about this one, Kim, but one of the discussions I have with, so for example, as an African-American man, one of the things that comes up sometimes is uh, with my other colleagues who are African-American, we have an interesting discussion about the extent to which you feel the need to impose authority on the classroom versus trying to just generate it through your own behavior. In other words, for example, I tend to be pretty informal. I never ask people to call me professor. I always say, call me Rob. And I kind of remove as much as I can any of these sort of official signifiers of authority because I feel very strongly that the respect or not that they will have from you should come from the content of what you're doing and not forcing them to follow rules about calling you certain things, for example. But I have some colleagues who would say, why would you do that? Why, you know, it's hard enough as it is, if there's any element of your identity that makes it uh, harder to con command that authority, why would you voluntarily remove it? For me, it's inauthentic to, to force people to say or do or behave in a way that things that, that, that reinforce my authority. But there's other colleagues of mine who would absolutely disagree with that. And it's a very interesting debate. It's something we spend a lot of time thinking about how to calibrate the way you come across in your pedagogy in the classroom as it relates to the content of what you're teaching in the classroom. But I'd love to hear your thoughts, Kim. Sure. So it's a it's a fascinating question, Rob. You know, my sense of this has been rather than deciding for my students, I try to remain open to the different needs that different students have. For example, some of my students come, as do yours and Mike's, I know, come from traditions where you respond to a person who is teaching you with an honorific. Now, it may be that they call you Professor Kim rather than Professor Leary, Professor Kim being the more, you know, or Dr. Kim being the, you know, the, the more familiar, but their comfort with you depends on acknowledging you in that way. And there are other students who really do feel quite comfortable, would never bother to ask if I wanted to be addressed by my first name. They just call me by my first name. And so in a classroom like the ones that we have where uh, it's experiential to uh, a significant degree. One is watching and learning with the class. We're learning to watch the class together, all of us, to see who feels the comfort at being able to use certain forms of authority in the classroom. Students have informal authority too. We can all see who gets listened to when they speak and, and who doesn't. And also how they respond to me as the you know, so-called authority figure in the class. And about the pedagogy, you know, uh, a lot of the time we are constructing and learning together. Case in point would be when we switched from the residential classroom to Zoom uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, uh, we were trying to figure out how do you take an experiential learning experience and transform it to the Zoom environment? And we had like, you know, 48 hours in which to do that. So 
some of the classes began with our discussing the challenge and my putting it out to the students. What should we do next if this is what we're trying to achieve here? And learning to listen to each other, I think, is a critical part of your 4P model, Rob, uh, about uh, perception, that there are different uh, perspectives out there, and also what it means to demonstrate respect for persons. I'm interested, Rob, in what your stats colleague said, that uh, you deserve higher pay. I, I would think, I hope I'm self-conscious when I teach. I hope I'm aware of the process and how I'm connecting or not with with students, but I'm not teaching that stuff simultaneously. And it seems to me that you would have to be one very cool cucumber to um, deal with the fact that you're teaching in two different ways. One is the content you're presenting, but also in modeling the behavior. Do you have any pre-class rituals that you go through to uh, get in the right uh, frame of mind? It's funny to ask that. I actually saw a, a video that the Harvard Business School put out about uh, teaching at the business school, which really looked wonderful, actually. And they were talking about some of the professors were talking about pre-class rituals that they go through. And I actually thought to myself, I don't really do that. I should probably introduce some of that uh, to my own approach myself. But the bigger, I think, takeaway for me about that sort of dual teaching thing is, is when it's done well, it's exactly as Kim described, which I think is not to kind of hold yourself to this standard of flawlessly modeling every point that you teach, but rather it's that openness and willingness to um, engage with when you mess up. Like I, I tell stories about how I screwed up all the time. And I think it would be disingenuous to sort of pretend that uh, we can all, you know, carry ourselves exactly as we're teaching about it. I think Kim put it really well when uh, she said that, you know, we use the classroom experience itself as the learning point. And so uh, like I have a friend who teaches of management effectiveness, including time management. And she always jokes that, you know, she's the one person who could never be late because that would undermine everything she's talking <laughs> about. But the truth is, even if imagine she were late, I don't even know that she ever has been, but if she were like, that would be a learning point we could discuss, you know? And if I am talking about the third P of people about respecting emotions, and if I were to, I don't know, snap, um, I wouldn't say I can remember doing that in the classroom, but if you ask my two daughters who are teenagers right now, has daddy ever lost his temper on something? The answer would be yes, absolutely. And I think that, you know, we're human beings. So for me, the bigger goal really is about demonstrating how you grapple with these, trying to live up to these ideals, even if you don't do it successfully, because that in its, of itself is modeling authentic leadership, I think, where you're showing that you're not getting it right and how you're approaching the fact that you didn't get it right is, is the learning itself. At the Kennedy School, our friends and colleagues, Ronnie Heifetz and Marshall Gantz, uh, uh, have a, a, a really great way of describing this. And they talk about the importance of public learning. Because when you think about it, if you're in a leadership role in front of other people, particularly in an elected or public problem-solving context, you're going to be in public all the time. And you're going to be learning in real time. And people, all eyes are going to be on you, as Rob mentions. So that ability to uh, have a stance of public learning. And I think your question, Mike, is great about how do you prepare yourself to learn publicly? Because public learning does mean starting things, but them going in a very different direction than you may have expected or even desired and still continuing the conversation with people. 
Well, Kim, I think that's a nice sum up of uh, what we've done in the last minutes here. We are always unscripted, but I think in this particular uh, episode, we, I hope, in a small way, have modeled what we're talking about, pursuing interesting opportunities, catching ourselves when we misspeak, and so forth. So, Rob, I want to thank you very deeply for uh, joining us on Agility at Work. Thank you very much for having me. Great to speak with both of you. Well, Kim, it was great to hear you and Rob talk about adaptive leadership, specifically how you teach it and do your very best to model it in the way that you uh, teach. So it's interesting. This is the first time, Kim, that uh, you've been both a co-host and, uh, shall we say, a guest on this as well. How did that feel? Well, it was a pleasure and a lot of fun. You know, Rob is a a terrifically talented teacher, and we've uh, had the pleasure of working together for the last while uh, on the framework he developed, the 4P framework, and it's really been a a really wonderful exchange. So I'm glad you had a chance to experience uh, some of our back and forth that that we uh, enjoy when when we're trying to write things up and uh, pull together working papers and so forth. Well, it's clear why you've both been so successful at it, and it's been great for me to be along for the ride. Looking forward to next time, Kim. You bet, Mike.